0: Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today, we will be opening up the Salt and Light Treasure Vault and pulling out some of our favorite conversations from the fall of 2018. We begin by speaking with Marie-Claude Lalonde of the organization Aid to the Church in Need about religious persecution around the world and how it affects us. And then we reconnect with beloved liturgical composer Dan Schutte, Who has a new album Love and Grace. In our second half hour we speak with author Eleanor Borg Nicholson about vampires and what they have to do with our Catholic faith and at the end of the program we reconnect with singer-songwriter Daniel Oberreiter of the band The Thirsting that has two new albums. We begin now with Religious Persecution. Aid to the Church in Need is a Catholic charity that provides emergency and pastoral relief in some 140 different countries. Because they are on the ground, Aid to the Church in Need is committed to chronicling and assessing the persecution against Christians around the world. This week... On the wake of an event that they call Red Wednesday, Remembering Persecuted Christians, they have released a report looking at religious persecution, not just persecution against Christians, but all religions. And to tell us more, earlier this week I spoke with Marie-Claude Lalonde, National Director of Aid to the Church in Need, Canada. Marie-Claude, welcome to the Sultan Light Hour. Thank you. Good to see you. Um, so before we start talking about the report, because I do want to get to the report, um, I, uh, maybe some of our listeners are not familiar with Aid to the Church in Need. I mentioned that that your or- organization is is committed to doing emergency and pastoral relief in some 140 different countries. But what does that look like when you're on the ground? What kind of work are you doing?
1: Well, it depends on the situation. When the problem is Poverty, poverty of the people, poverty of the church, Uh then uh, we mostly do pastoral work to make sure the church can function because in many places, who helps the people? Mm -hmm. It's the church. Mm -hmm. So by helping the church, we're helping uh, the whole population, and we can do that in different fashions, like a car for pastoral needs so the priest or the sisters can go around. Okay. Uh, Formation… Construction to help for with chapels with seminaries, so that's the poverty part. When right. it comes to the uh, persecution part, uh-huh. uh, well, there one of our uh, of our goal is really to wear uh, to raise awareness
2: mm-hmm.
1: about the problem. So that's. The first thing we can do, but most of the time, then we end up having real problems, violence. Right. And, and in those cases, what we do is really humanitarian work until the situation gets better. And the very good example of that is Iraq. We uh-huh. helped Christians in Iraq from day one and now we are rebuilding their houses so they can right. go back for those who want to go so you're back.
0: doing you're doing relief work
1: absolutely
0: specifically relief work so but uh, but like you said if there is no humanitarian crisis you'd be doing work that's specifically supporting the church exactly okay i see so i guess that that's how you come to be able to compile a report like this one because you're actually on the ground working and seeing people do you have I mean, I know you're the, you're the national director in Canada. You must have national directors in, what, all 140 countries? No. No. In 23 countries.
1: In 23 countries, countries. But we do have an international office where okay. we have people there who visit those countries and who are specialized in certain regions of the world because it's very important to understand the situation, the background right. before deciding if we're going to support or not a project.
0: And the international office is in France. In Germany. In Germany actually. <laughs> I should have known that. It's in Germany. Um, And so uh, how long has Aid to the Church in Need been in existence?
1: Well, it started in 1947 in Belgium. Wonderful. And then it spread. It started by helping uh, people behind the Iron Curtain. We were known for that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we got requests of different kinds and the work expanded. And now we're on all continents.
0: So, uh, uh, last question about Aid to the Church in Need. So when when you as national director in your office in Canada, do you work specifically on certain projects or are you mainly seeing how Canada, the Canadian church, can assist the work that you're doing abroad or what specifically is your role here in Canada?
1: Well, our role, as I said, raising awareness Mm -hmm. and also raising funds because obviously those projects need uh, to be funded. So that's what we mainly do here. And we do have specific focus. Like this year, we focused on Nigeria. Okay. We had a bishop from Nigeria, the Archbishop of Jos, who came in June. So we did a little Canadian tour yeah. with him. And now we're having a fundraising campaign to help Nigerians.
0: Okay. I see. And I presume that the work in the States... For the national office in the United States would be similar. It's similar, similar. yes. So this report—it's um, y- not the first report you put out a report on religious freedom freedom every every other year, um, or, or sometimes you put out reports on on specifically on Christian persecution or Christian yes, freedom.
1: We do, we do have both reports. Both
0: reports. What would you say is significant then about this report this year?
1: Well, what is significant is we see a rise in persecution around the world. Uh Uh, We now, well, persecution and lack of religious freedom. If we talk specifically about the lack of religious freedom, well, we think 61% of the world's population has problems with the respect of their religious freedom. Really? So six people out of 10 have problems with that. And uh, if you look at the um, the Christians more specifically, well, until recently, we had made a calculation. And figures are not exact because you can imagine that there is no formal statistics on those problems. Yeah. But we made a calculation saying that 200 million Christians around the world suffered persecution. Oh, wow. And I just discovered the new figure is 327 million Christians suffering persecution.
0: Wow, around the world. Around the world. And what kind of... I think people are thinking persecution, violent persecution, but what kind of persecution are you specifically referring to?
1: Well, there is uh, persecution on different levels. Mm -hmm. We would start by saying discrimination. So that's where it starts. For instance, I can give an example. If you are in certain countries and you would like to work for the government, Mm -hmm. well, if you have the wrong religion, you can't. Okay. If you want to enter a college, it's the same thing. They might not say it, but you will see that Christians have no place in that specific college. Right. So it starts like that. Permits, having permits to build churches. Right. So um, that's also a problem. Then it moves on to people um, being questioned, being arrested, unfortunately, sometimes tortured and mm-hmm. killed. And we saw it on a different scale with Syria and Iraq, right. actually, yeah. because it was more of the nature of a genocide over there.
0: Yeah, I guess in this program, uh, we have spoken quite a bit about uh, the case of Asia Bibi in Pakistan. Um, so I guess she's an example of maybe one of the more extreme
1: cases, would you say? Or Yes, well, she, I think her case became like uh, an example of what persecution can be. Right. Um, and... Very typical of uh, problems with religious freedom in general as well, because in Pakistan there is a law called the, the blasphemy. blasphemy law, yeah. and. Um, it doesn't affect only Christians. Yes. But Christians are easy targets yeah. somehow because they're a minority.
2: They're
1: a minority. Yeah. And uh, for a, a big group of them, not very educated.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, what happened to uh, Mrs. Bibi is that she had a fight over a glass of water yeah. with Muslim women. Yes. And then she was accused yeah. of blasphemy. And she spent nine years in prison because of that. And very – her case was dragging on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because uh, mainly no judges wanted to get involved. And we saw it. Yes. We saw it. Now she was acquitted. But the judges were threatened. Yeah, and
0: the lawyer had to be exiled. Exactly,
1: exactly. So it's not only the person who actually is in prison. It's the whole family, the whole surrounding.
0: Yes. Um, I think a lot of us in North America, I mean, we're here in Canada. We might think, oh, that's happening in another country Um, What does all this, this report, what does it mean to me here in Canada or for our listeners in the United States? What does it mean to us here? Do we see discrimination here in Canada, for example?
1: Yes, I think we see small cases of discrimination, but not to the level that it is an organized and systematic right, thing. Right, it's
0: not state sponsored.
1: No, exactly. <laughs> so you have problems here and there. And we saw with the summer jobs program uh, last summer okay. uh, that it was a delicate question. Can you
0: explain what that was for our American listeners?
1: Yes, actually, um, the government to receive funding for students uh, for summer jobs There was a question asking the organization requesting the funds if they were respecting reproductive rights. Right, and of course we all
0: know what that means. (laughs) Exactly,
1: we all know what that means, and uh, it was difficult. Some uh, some people from different religions say, "Well, I Mm -hmm. cannot sign that," but if you don't sign, you don't get the money. Right. So it's supposed to be modified. I think the government heard what the churches had to say. It's supposed to be modified. But this is just one case. Mm-hmm. So it's nothing systematic in, in general. But what we have to be aware of in Canada is persecution could come. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always – we've seen it in different countries, in France, in Spain, uh, with different terrorist attacks – it could come, but on the other hand, the bright side of that is we have a judicial system. It's functioning, it's functioning yes. well. Yes. And so if you have a problem, you can always go in front of civil courts and yes. uh, and there, I would say, test your problem against yes. the law. And uh, most of the time, the the, the courts are very receptive. Yes. It's it's new to them. It's new to them when we talk about that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It might, it might be uh, difficult and it might take a long time, but at least um, you might be able to resolve it because the rule of law, as you said, works in these countries. That's not the case for most people around the world. No. So we really appreciate the work that your organization, Aid to the Church in Need, is doing around the world and so many others that, if I can say, many of them are Christian organizations that are working around the world to make sure that human rights are respected, that the dignity of the person is respected, and that we can fulfill, I guess, our potential as sons and daughters of God, (laughs) as we're intended. Marie-Claude, that's all the time that we have, but I'm very happy that you were able to come in to tell us a little bit about what you do and about this report. My pleasure. Thank you. That was a conversation I had with Marie-Claude Lalonde, National Director of Aid to the Church in Need Canada earlier this week. Aid to the Church in Need is a pontifical charity at the service of the Catholic Church, providing support to the Catholic faithful and other Christians where they may be persecuted or oppressed or in need of pastoral care. You can find out more at anc-canada.org or churchinneed.org in the United States. Here now is The Mystery of God by Dan Schutte from his new collection, Love and Grace. That was Mystery of God by Dan Schutte from his new collection, Love and Grace. Dan Schutte is most certainly one of the most well-known, influential, and beloved liturgical composers of our time. He began his composing career almost 50 years ago collaborating with the St. Louis Jesuits, collaborations that produced classics such as Here I Am, Lord, City of God, and Sing a New Song. Dan has continued making music and now has a new collection that marks 50 years of composing music for prayer and worship and celebrates God's eternal gifts of love and grace, which is actually the title of the collection, Love and Grace. And to tell us all about it, I'm now joined by Dan Schutte. Dan, welcome back to the Sultanite Hour.
3: Thank you, Deacon Pedro. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much yeah, for the invitation.
0: It, it's so good to hear you and and to get to speak to you. So, tell us about this new collection. What's uh, what's new about the new collection?
3: Well, the new the new collection is actually fourteen songs mm-hmm. um, that I've been working on over the course of the last six years. I. I've never been one of those composers who, who cranks out a new collection of music, you know, every year or two. Right. This is so. This this is the work of six years. Um, some of the pieces are already in print form, um, and some of them, the brand newer ones, are not yet. Okay. But very close.
0: Okay. And uh, so, and again, it, it's liturgical music—music music to be used in liturgy, or?
3: Well, it's it's both for liturgy and for personal prayer and for spirituality.
0: personal. Prayer, yeah. Okay, um, in the little I guess description of the of the collection, it it says that it's marks fifty years of composing. So, would you say <laughs> I don't want to date you, but but is it is it is there something about this collection that is celebrating your fifty year career?
3: Well, it's it's um, I don't know don't want to say this. It's, <laughs> the fifty years are are comes up next year. Actually, yes. my earliest published yes, song. Yes, that's true. And, and so this, this collection was, it's, it's not, wasn't primarily created to mark the 50 years, Mm -hmm. but it comes up at about that date. So it's
0: that right timing. Would you say that your, your composing, your music writing, I mean, obviously you've grown (laughs) all these years. How, how would you say that your composing has changed or what has changed about how you write music in the last 50 years?
3: Well I think I think I've learned the musical skills better than I ha- did in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have much music training. It, it was very informal, yeah, in my early years. Since then, I've had more of that. So that's part of the in- part of the influence though, is is just my own journey of faith uh-huh. and the maturing that goes on, you know as we go on through life, there are different challenges mm-hmm. and so forth. And hopefully our faith, continues to grow and mature as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you chose to call this collection Love and Grace. So is that reflective of where you are in your life now, in a way?
3: It is. And, and I should should mention that the Love and Grace title actually comes from one of the pieces right. on the collection. Yeah. The closing piece is called These Alone Are Enough, mm-hmm. um, which was actually first published back in 2005. Mm-hmm. But in that piece, These Alone Are Enough, there's, in the refrain section of it, it's give me nothing more than your love and grace, mm. alone, oh God, are enough for me. Mm-hmm. So that's where the title was pulled from.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But but the love and grace sort of captured for me the, the overall um, feel and prayerfulness of this collection of music.
0: Yeah, and that's very much, I mean, that's the prayer of St. Ignatius. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, which, which I presume, it still forms part of your spirituality and your how you pray.
3: Well, very much so, Deacon Pedro. I was a many people know I was a yes. Jesuit for twenty years of my life, and so Ignatian spirituality is at at the very core of my own journey of faith and also of my music.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So the the thong, song that I just mentioned; these alone are enough. Is exa- is actually. A prayer by St. Ignatius that I set to music.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm always fascinated by when, you know, I don't know if you, when you were writing these songs or as these songs were coming to you over the last six years, if you were thinking, oh, I'm working towards a collection, or if eventually you got to 14 songs and you thought, you know, these kind of all work together as a collection, and how you're able to pick that one song that, in this case, called, you know, that's about love and grace, the prayer of St. Ignatius, Mm -hmm. that kind of brings it all together. um, And and how that, I don't know, for you, is that something that is more organic or something that is more planned or, you know, in good Ignatian kind of discernment? Does it sort of, (laughs) does the Holy Spirit guide you through that? How does that process for you?
3: So much of it is the Holy Spirit. I suppose in the back of my mind six years ago, after my previous collection, Um, and I began writing the pieces individually. In the back of my mind, there was always the thought that someday these pieces would fit together in a collection, but I didn't thematically imagine them that way. Um, There's a wide variety of pieces on here. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a piece for Ash Wednesday Mm -hmm. um, called Ashes to Ashes. There's a version of the Beatitudes. Um, There's a a piece called Canticle of Creation, that's,
2: mm-hmm.
3: that's Saint Francis Canticle of the Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, I mean, there's just a ton of different themes that I cover. It just the love and grace overall theme just seemed to fit to pull all of those disparate uh, prayers together.
0: Mm-hmm. Do, you you said that you don't. You're not, you know, crunching out new albums every year, but I presume that you're constantly composing, that you're always sort of sitting, you know, I don't know if you sit at the piano or if you pick up your guitar, or or what is that composing process for you?
3: You, You're absolutely right. So I'm either sitting at the piano or with a guitar on my lap. Yeah. Um, Much of my inspiration comes either from going to Sunday Mass, and hearing uh, a piece of Scripture, and sometimes it's just one line from the piece of Scripture, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, why why haven't I ever right, heard yeah. that line before? Yeah, why? why why hasn't it ever struck me the way it did today? Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm at liturgy, and I'm also thinking to myself, you know, people could really use a song to to celebrate and pray through this particular moment or this particular ritual.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. The the, the Ashes to Ashes piece Mm -hmm. that I mentioned was one of those. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I created that piece, um, I was thinking not only of Ash Wednesday, which is the obvious choice, but I made the piece universal enough so that it could be sung through all the Sundays of the season of Lent. The verses come from different scripture passages that we hear Throughout that whole season
0: do you do you find that you then you you come up with the lyrics because it's scripture based first and then the music comes or is it oftentimes that the music you might hear a scripture passage and it comes to you with that music
3: usually it starts with the scripture passage yeah and, and it often many times it's only one one single line um, mm-hmm. it's not that I have i've never really um, had a whole text for a song all mapped out right and then with music to it uh but it does start with the one line or two lines of scripture and then i started the music and then what what often happens is the, the music runs away beyond yes the point where the words end and then i have to fill in the words yeah um beyond that
0: Wonderful. Um, so one
3: of the interesting, one of the interesting things that I do, Deacon Pedro, when I sit down to write a piece of music is in, the, in my mind's eye, I'm imagining a community of people at worship. Yeah, and how are they going to sing this? Mm-hmm. What, what can I write both melodically but also spiritually in the text? What can I write to help them to pray this moment?
0: Right. Yeah, and I think you've done that. Always, you've done that very well. So I think that on behalf of all our listeners, we we can thank you um, for, I mean, I, I, I know that there's going to be more collections. It's not like your career is over. So um, I'm looking sure. forward to more more great stuff coming from you. Thank you so much, uh, Dan, for, very for the work that you do and, and for telling us all about it. It's
3: my privilege to do it.
0: Dan Schuette is a liturgical composer. You can bring him to your parish. He loves that. And all you have to do is ask. Go to his website, Dan Schuette Music. And just so that you know, it's Schuette, S-C-H-U-T-T-E, danschuettemusic.com. You can find out more how to do that, how to reach him. His latest collection is Love and Grace, published by Oregon Catholic Press. Here now is I Found the Treasure by Dan Schuette from his latest collection, Love and Grace. Thank you. Listening to Dan Shuty with I Found the Treasure from his new collection, Love and Grace, published by Oregon Catholic Press. This is a special edition of the Saltonite Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Be sure to visit our website at saltonitetv.org slash radio. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour part two, I'm Deacon Pedro. When I heard that there was a new Catholic Gothic vampire novel, I had to get my hands on it. A vampire hunting priest? My excuse was that I needed good summer reading, but in reality I was truly intrigued. Travel back to London in the year 1900, the novel Dracula has just been published, when a series of strange murders begin to take place. Before we even know what's going on, our protagonist, the lawyer, John Kemp, finds himself entangled with an eccentric Dominican priest that challenges everything he ever believed about faith, about vampires, and about papists. <laughs> Sounds intriguing, right? Well, to tell us all about it, I'm now joined by the author of A Bloody Habit, Eleanor Borg Nicholson. Eleanor, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So. Um, I don't know if you would consider yourself a Catholic author. I mean, you are you're formerly were the executive director of Catholic literary magazine, um, Dappled Things. You're also the associate editor of the St. Austin Review. Um, I, those are Catholic publications, so I guess that's Catholic writing. But other than being a good thriller, what made you want to write about vampires?
4: Well, I've been really preoccupied with the novel Dracula ever since I read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nearly 20 years ago. Uh-huh. So, um, and my background, academic background, was the study of English literature, and I specialized in anti-Catholicism of the British Victorian period, okay. which means I read a lot of Gothic novels. Okay. Um, and I love Gothic novels, the old-fashioned style. Um,
2: uh-huh.
4: And so i it's something that I've worked on me- for many, many years, on and off, and the story just sort of came to me, and then I had I had to write it.
0: So, what is your what? Why why are you fascinated? You said you were fascinated by Dracula or by vampires, or both.
4: Well, by 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 the way that the Gothic genre arose, leading to something like Dracula, uh-huh. because mostly um, the very anti-Catholic English tradition, mm-hmm. literary tradition, uh, they they don't portray Catholicism well, but to convey the the gothic you you need those tools you need all the accessories and the catholic characters right um and by the time you get to dracula bram stoker who was not catholic but was his wife did convert to catholicism but he was not catholic he was very he was able to use the catholic uh, smells and bells and whistles and characters in a very uh uh, uninhibited way right he wasn't all uh Caught up in the anti Catholicism of the Brits. He was an Irishman. Uh-huh. So he was much more comfortable uh-huh. in appropriating Catholic themes. He made a lot of mistakes about the Catholics, but it just ended up enhancing his story because uh-huh. of his enthusiastic. Uh, right appropriation of all the Catholic imagery
0: no and I, and I get I guess I understand why the Catholic uh, culture maybe can needs to be part of that because of the time period but I mean your vampire hunter if I can call him that could have been it could have been anyone but why Dominican friars
4: well that was partly uh, a theory and partly a nightmare um, uh-huh. her, the theory was that um, I figured that if you really wanted somebody who was good at killing vampires or battling the preternatural in general, it would have to be somebody who is so deeply united to the supernatural that the preternatural doesn't really alarm him at all. Okay. And why not a very matter-of-fact Dominican priest? Yeah, he was. So I, I played with the idea, and then many, many years ago when I was on a retreat, a working retreat staying with some nuns, um, I saw a Dominican friar friend of mine and he recommended that I take a nap while I was on retreat. Well, I'm try to be obedient, so I the next day went to take a nap. Yeah. And during my nap I had a nightmare about the first chapter of my novel, woke up and wrote it. And it took me seven years to finish it, but that's where it began. Wow. That nightmare.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Um, in the book I was fascinated by a lot of the information that you pull about You know, I mean, this this character, the Dominican priest, has a lot of knowledge about the supernatural, as you mentioned, and about vampires and werewolves and other creatures. Um, Did you find research about, you know, the Catholic Church or what the Catholic Church would have said about the existence or non-existence of supernatural creatures like vampires?
4: Well, there were a lot of texts written and uh, guidebooks written over several centuries on the preternatural. But the most significant um, in Catholic terms, uh, Pope Benedict XIV actually published, he was writing a papal document on the proper treatment of the bodies of saints, Uh and he has a chapter that's about the proper treatment of bodies believed to be vampiric, where he was responding to a frantic uh, vampire hysteria craze that was sweeping across mostly Eastern Europe, and he was telling that, uh, you know, saying, you know, stop digging up bodies and staking them. Stop. <laughs> you're, you're, you're assaulting the graves. Stop. So right. that's where I created the start of my history saying, well, uh-huh. then he turned around and actually uh, gave faculties to the Dominicans uh, to battle this. Right. But it was there, there's actually a papal document with a chapter with the word vampire in its title.
0: Okay, and I keep using the word supernatural, and you keep using the word preternatural. Can you tell us what that means?
4: The preternatural—so if if you think—supernatural referring to God, but the preternatural still has a basis in the physical world. It it basically encompasses all of the things that are breaking some of the natural rules or going outside the natural rules. That's where you'd find ghosts, vampires, to an extent werewolves, but I'm I'm not entirely convinced of where they fit into this. Okay. Anything that goes bump in the night.
0: Well, we had my, he's not exactly co-host, but he does a segment for the show. Billy Chan wanted to know, wanted me to ask you about zombies. So where do would they be preternatural? Supernatural? It
4: depends depends on your definition of zombie. Because the uh, more ancient folklore understanding of the zombie is that it is an undead creature that is somehow under the power of a sorcerer. Nowadays, a lot of the zombies that you see are virus created zombies uh-huh, or something like right. that. So it's, yeah. it's a different. That's a different. That's a different category. Right. right? If you're looking at the old fashioned zombie, yeah, we're talking about the preternatural again.
0: Interesting. Now, were the I'm also uh, did you find that there are? I mean, the whole. I mean, I don't know the the lore about vampires. Would that have? Would that be have been rooted in some Catholic beliefs about drinking blood, for example?
4: There was, there was a heavy influence um, in, uh, for Catholicism, but uh, the myths about the vampire mm-hmm. in various manifestations go back to antiquity. But, the, but Catholicism and you know, Christ giving himself
2: mm-hmm.
4: and his body and blood, that was, I mean, a stumbling block for the Jews who felt like it was some sort of dark yeah. blood drinking yeah, ritual. Of course. So, so there was a concern about that. Um, and it would have influenced, especially as you reach the point of, say, the Reformation, and which actually, ironically, after the Reformation and after the so-called Age of Enlightenment is when you had the waves of modern vampire hysteria across across Europe.
0: Right. Would you say... So,
4: yes, I think, sorry. I think Catholicism would have... In- yeah. I'm sorry. Catholicism would have intensified that.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, would you say that there's... Story is ultimately about evil and about sin.
4: Actually, I would say uh, the opposite. I think, and I should admit that if I write the story as it comes to me and do all the research, and then at yeah. the end turn around and say, "Wow, what was that story about?" Yeah. I think it's about goodness, and I think uh-huh. it's about hope—hope hope in the face of horror. Um, because when—and this is one of the reasons I love the gothic genre. When you're talking about blood-drinking assaults on London, it, you've already so challenged your reader to suspend disbelief yeah. that you can now talk about themes like life and death, and damnation and salvation without getting right. cheesy or preachy. Yeah. So in the end, I think it's about goodness.
0: Okay, that's help. Uh, yeah, it is good. So that's a bloody habit. You can get it, a uh, pledge by Ignatius Press, Eleanor Borg-Nicholson. Thank you so much for, for, I guess it must have been fun writing the book, and it was fun reading it, and, and thank you for, for sharing a little bit about what you do with us today.
4: Thank you so much. It was a blast, and I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: Eleanor Borg-Nicholson is the associate editor for the Austin, the St. Austin Review. She's also editor of several Ignatius Critical Editions volumes, including the Critical Edition of Dracula. She's the author of The Letters of Magdalene Montague, available through Kaufman Publishing. And her latest novel, A Bloody Habit, is published by Ignatius Press. Here now is our featured band of the week, The Thirsting, with Come Hold My Son, from their new rosary album of the same name. A
5: cold night in Bethlehem No fire to warm her hands She gives birth to the Word made flesh The bread of a life she puts in a manger She won't understand why they come to adore him, but just say, come hold my son, come hold Chelsea she bore grass for air. A loud cry and her heart is pierced. The child she held has gone from her. His body hangs without They take him down from the tree, they lay him in his mother's arms, they lay him in her
0: That was The Thirsting with Come Hold My Son from their new rosary album of the same name. Now, we first met The Thirsting in March 2017 when uh, their lead singer, Daniel Oberreuter, came on this program to tell us about this rock band, because that's really what they are. They're a rock band that hopes to proclaim the truths of the Catholic faith. And he described their mission with three words, Trinity, Rosary, and Eucharist. Those three words that go really well with rock music. Um, the Thirsting has two new albums, Michael, and a rosary album titled Come Hold My Son. And to tell us more, I'm joined by Daniel Oberreuter. Daniel, welcome back to the Salt and Light Hour.
6: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: So, I, I wanted to, I mean, I want to get to talk to uh, about Michael, but we just heard the song Come Hold My Son, which is in your rosary album, but that obviously that song is not, a rosary prayer, but but there's a neat story as to how that came about. Tell us that story.
6: Yeah, so I, uh, I wrote that song. I was praying before our Lord in the Eucharist, and uh, I was praying a rosary. And there's a, a statue right next to me. There's a tabernacle, and then there's a statue of the Pieta. And uh, uh-huh. I just really, it felt like that statue came alive, and I just kept hearing Mary saying, "Come, hold my son," hmm. um, and I. I just kind of it went deep down in my heart. And, and and that afternoon, I went back to my office. At the time, I was working at that church. And, and I, I wrote Come Hold My Son, the song, in about 45 minutes. Huh. And uh, it was just a, a gift from Our Lady and Our Lord. And now I, I share that song all across the nation. I do parish missions based off of that song. yeah, um, And it's touched thousands of souls across the, the world.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's not the kind of you you're right. It's a gift because it's not the kind of thing that we would think, <laughs> I think, think of on our own, you know, like yeah. we think Mary leads us to Jesus. But this idea and it's the pieta, right? So this is the my dead son. Um, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, you
6: can look at it. Or the broken, the broken,
0: the the broken Christ. Yes. Right.
6: She's presenting her son to us.
0: Yeah. Her,
6: her crucified son, her, her baby boy. And yeah, her
0: exactly. Son. Exactly, right. Yeah. So, yeah, because it works for Christmas, too. Um, yeah. So so it's a rosary, but the album is an actual rosary album that, that I can pray the rosary with, right?
6: Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. My, I like to say it's kind of like Imagine Coldplay meets the rosary. Yes, um, yes. It, it's pretty pretty cool. It's very prayerful, uh, but yes. you, you definitely, my wife and I recorded it together.
0: Oh, okay so it's your wife singing with you I didn't know that um beautiful yeah. um um or praying with you as well so yeah it's the kind of thing so I think a lot of people I do this I have a, a Rosary CD I still have a CD mm-hmm. player in my car um and I and I, I I drive a lot so that's great so this kind of album would be great for people to help them pray the rosary yeah. for that devotion so that's you know
6: I'll, I'll just mention this. yeah uh, you, people can go to you can buy the album uh if you go to a website called rosaryrevolution.com. Uh-huh. Yeah. Rosaryrevolution.com. And we'll also set up something, too, for churches. You know, since this is coming up Christmas right now, they can order these CDs in bulk okay. at a really cheap price to give away to their parishioners after the Christmas Mass.
0: Oh, that's a great um, idea. This,
6: this, yeah, this is a double disc um, for $3 a piece if they order 100 or more. They can give these away as Christmas gifts. Just go to rosaryrevolution.com.
0: Okay, that's great. So rosaryrevolution.com, good good to keep in mind as we approach uh, Black Friday here with your shopping, Cyber Monday. um, let's talk about Michael, um, Michael, yeah. the archangel, in case any people haven't clued in that that's what we're talking about. <laughs> um, why? Okay. So here's, here's my, my big question. I ask a lot of people the same question because listening to the whole album, it doesn't scream to me, spiritual war- warfare. So, but maybe, maybe I'm missing something. So why, why would the song Michael be, or that title be the one that kind of summarizes what the whole album is for you?
6: Well, you know, um, originally the album was going to be called "Holy Angels" because we wrote a song called "Holy Angels."
2: Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And
6: uh, I just kind of had this theme of angels. We have the song "Holy Angels," and then I wrote "Michael." Right. So it wasn't so much a spiritual warfare theme; it was more so a theme of angels. Angels. Um, and you know, mixed in with divine mercy. You know, we got we we did redid "Ocean of Mercy," the song. Right. And uh, just God's God's continual grace and mercy for us, and always calling us back, and how he uses the angels, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'll be honest, Michael is a very special saint to me, and I I don't know what it is, but it's kind of funny. Um, You know, my name's Daniel, but (laughs) if anyone's gonna mess up on my name, this happens to me, you know, because I fly to different churches almost every weekend, someone will say, oh, hey, Michael,
2: I'm like, "Uh,
6: it's Daniel. But they'll call me Michael. That's but funny. It's, it's kind of funny, but I, it's, I think it's a God thing. So we have a very special devotion to Michael and our family and with the band.
0: Yes. No, that's great. Wow. And I think I think more and more, um, and I don't know, maybe it is a reflection of where we are in our times, but I think more and more I'm hearing about people that have wow. devotions to St. Michael Archangel. Actually, I think the Holy Father even said during the month of October, he said, Add, pray the prayer of St. Michael you know, there's all this upheaval sure. in the church and 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 sex abuse scandals, and the church is under attack. Yeah. And I think we see it. Um, so that's yeah. a, a great, uh, great ally to have um, to defend yeah. us and protect us. Um, I wanted to ask you about something right. else about this new uh, uh, ca- new Catholic music movement, my friend. Mm-hmm. This sounds yeah. like a revolution. Tell me about it. Tell me about that.
6: You know, it's it's based off of. You know, we have to be, first off, authentically Catholic, fully in love with the Church and her teachings, and we want to promote the Catholic Church. You know, I think so many things in our Catholic ministries that we get involved in, a lot of times we kind of forget what the main focus is. Yeah. Our, our main, my main job, the main job of any minister in the Catholic Church is to help create authentic Catholics, people that live, love, and follow all the Church's teachings. And so the New Catholic Music Movement, it, it's a its a movement to, to really help people become fully alive in the Catholic Church, and uh-huh. music is a powerful tool to do that, and, and so it's it's not being afraid to be Catholic in our music, and be fully sold out and saying, yes, I'm Catholic, and I'm promoting the Catholic Church. We do that in love, right? you know, um, and, and we respect people where they're at, but we want to lead people to the fullness of truth, because hey, the church is the fullness of truth, amen.
0: <laughs> so you're, so, but how does it work? Are you encouraging people to kind of listen to more Catholic music and be, and share it and be proud of it, or or what?
6: Oh, I, I well, part of it is just encouraging other artists to right. not, not feel like they need to change their lyrics to feel like, well, I gotta I gotta sound more like your contemporary Christian, uh-huh. um, just basic Jesus lyrics. Right. Oh, no, you don't. You, you, you be... Who you are? Right. You're, you're Catholic. Yeah. Don't be. You don't need to water it down.
2: Uh huh. I get be it.
6: Straight up Catholic. You know, the more Catholic I am, the more fans I get.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. You know what? That's good. I talked to a lot of uh, Catholic artists, singer-songwriters in this program. So I'm going to start. Maybe I'll just send an email to everybody, guys. But I think a lot of them are, you know, sort of really reflecting who they are, and maybe it's not. Uh, explicitly Catholic in that, you know, it's not a song about the Eucharist or a song about the Holy Trinity or about Mary, but it does reflect who they are. Who because because it's you know you can't write about something that you don't know, right? Um, sure.
6: And and we can have. I mean, I'm saying like we can have basic Jesus worship songs. Yes.
0: There's nothing
6: wrong with that. Yes. I mean, that's great. That's beautiful. That's awesome. But we want to. Here's the deal. Like the. Contemporary Christian music world that we hear on, on the radio, uh-huh. um, they're never going to... We've accepted them into the Catholic Church. We've yes. accepted their music of praise and worship, and we look to them as leadership. But yeah. see, in so many ways, I don't know if they're ever going to really return the favor and accept yeah. as Catholic as I want to be
0: no, probably in not. their
6: world. Yeah so, if they're not like I, I just I, I know I mean they're, they're, yeah. I'm not gonna be able to talk about Our Lady, the Pope, the Eucharist, no, because people are gonna get freaked out about that. Yeah. So we need to start our own movement, yes. our own revolution of Catholic artists and musicians that are not afraid to be just solidly Catholic and and promoting the truth of the church.
0: Absolutely. Okay, good. Um, I I am certainly going to join you on that and pass that information on because I I completely agree. Um, Just a little bit of time that we have left. uh, Two new albums. Anything else coming down the pipes for you?
6: You know, uh, let's see. I'm always doing parish missions. I got a lot uh, lined up. So that's mainly what I do is is a lot of parish missions. I still have the band, you know, and we, we do events. Um, also, and the band is awesome. Band is like a big pump you up, yeah. rock out yes. Catholic. But the parish missions are where's where I, I come out by myself and and I can go a lot deeper. Uh-huh. Um, the website for those is comeholdmysun dot com. Okay. come dot com. And I do these all year round, and they're just very moving to people. Uh, I am working. I hope to release another album, actually, um, God willing next year in 2019 in the fall again, or oh, else the spring of 2020. Good. Yeah. Focused on the Eucharist.
0: Nice. Nice. Rock music about the Eucharist. Wow. I love it. Um, good. Uh, <laughs> so so you uh, well, that'll be a great uh, excuse to bring you back on the program. So that's good. So if Enough. people want to find out more, I mean for the music, we got the thirstingcatholic.com. That's the band site, but you also just shared with us comeholdmyson.com. If people want to yeah. specifically know more about the uh, parish missions. Uh, thank you. It's good stuff and and wow. uh and uh, stay in touch, and we'll bring you back on when we, there's more more things to talk about.
6: Okay, thanks so much. I All really right. appreciate you having me.
0: Not Yeah, great. God bless. Okay, God bless you. That was Daniel Oberreuter, lead singer for the band The Thirsting. You can find out more about them, book them for your event, purchase their music at the website thethirstingcatholic.com. There's also comeholdmyson.com. And that free download, you can send a text message to 31996, text the word Catholic, and uh, you'll get a link to download the whole album. Here now is The Thirsting with the title track of that album, Michael. listening to The Thirsting with Michael from their album of the same name and that concludes the special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Remember to visit our website, saltandlighttv.org That's where you can find out all about Salt and Light Media and how you can support our ministry. We cannot do what we do without your support. Any comments, feedback or questions, send them to me via Facebook or Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro.